Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. As always, I'm your host, Christian Massar, and today I'll actually be doing another interview. Today's guest is Professor Natalia Telepnieva. She is a lecturer in international history at the University of Strathclyde. Her specialty is the Cold War era Soviet Union and socialism with a specific focus on Africa. And today we will discuss her first book, Cold War Liberation, the Soviet Union and the Collapse of the Portuguese Empire in Africa, 1961 to 1975, in which she details the roles of Soviet and even Czechoslovak bureaucrats and spies in the anti-colonialist wars in Portugal's African colonies of Guinea-Bissau, Angola, and Mozambique. We will talk about what connected the Soviet Union with the local independence movements, how the communist Soviet government supported Marxism-inspired leaders in Portuguese Africa, and how the anti-colonial wars played out. You may download her book as a free ebook through the link which I will provide in the show notes. Let's get right into it. Professor Telepnieva, it was a, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for, for coming on today. Hi, it's very good to, to finally meet you. It's very good to meet you too. So if you don't mind, I would just like to uh, ask a little bit about yourself and the project. Um, kind of give an intro to your project, like kind of the your your personal background, professional background projects you've worked on in the past and and your interest in such projects. What uh, what what is your background basically? Yes, uh, my name is Natalia Telepneva. I'm originally from Russia and I came to this country when I was a teenager, basically, and then started uh, after university, uh, started working on my PhD, which concerned from the start Soviet relations with the liberation movements um, in the former Portuguese colonies, Angola, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau. Mm -hmm. which later on developed into a book project that was published last year um, by University of North Carolina Press called mm -hmm. Cold Operation. Mm -hmm. So this project basically tells the story of Soviet relations between uh, with the liberation movements in Angola, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau. But it's ultimately a big project that uh, uses the lens of these relationships to talk about bigger themes about um, Soviet uh, Soviet relations with African countries and also the Cold War in Africa more generally. Okay, that's very good. And what was the what kind of made you want to do this work? Like every time you know when we're in, when we're talking about academic work, right? We always we always want our research to fill a hole somewhere. So what was what was the research hole that that you wanted to fill in, so to speak, with with your with your PhD and with your work? Like what was the uh, kind of like, how is this research, uh, this work important in the kind of the field of Cold War studies in Africa and African studies and so on? Yes, I think my original interest was part of it was a little bit personal, part was was professional, because um, my, uh, my grandfather, he was a Soviet Jew who also went through the Second World War as a Red oh. Army officer. And mm -hmm. he would tell me, you know, the stories of him experiencing uh, basically when he would meet with the Americans on the Elba and this kind of messagealized stories, but right. about racism in the United States and kind of the racism that he saw in the American army and basically ju juxtaposing that kind of experience with his own anti-racism, which I believed was very genuine. And of course, at the time in 99, 
90s was there was a lot of actually backlash against immigrants from Central Asia in Russia after the collapse right. of the Soviet Union. This was something mm-hmm. he was really much against, uh, and, you know, kind of, he believed in this kind of internationalism and he was internationalist sort of mindset that he had. So that was very appealing to me. And of course I had a very close personal relationship with him. So I was always mm-hmm. interested in, in Soviet anti-racism, um, which sort of led me to explore Soviet relations with Africa. And mm-hmm. I thought, of course, initially when I started, I knew very little about, you know, right. colonies uh, or any of that stuff. But I was generally interested in support for kind of anti-imperialism, anti-racism in the USSR. And uh, when I first, many years ago, started this work, um, what I wanted really to understand is why the Soviet Union got involved in the Angolan Civil War and supporting one of the nationalist groups, the MPLA, MPLA. Yeah. In, in Angola. So this is the story that there was at the time in 2000s, uh, there was a lot of debate uh, around, you know, the role of the Soviets versus the Cubans and how that whole story uh, panned out. And I basically wanted to understand kind of the, the, the prehistory of that high point okay. In, in the Soviet interventions that led me to look at uh, the, the relations with liberation movements before, um, before 1975, um, which was when Angola finally became independent. And Mozambique too, I believe, 1975. Yes, yes, Mozambique too. Yeah, Mozambique too. Oh, okay. So kind of looking into the prehistory and the background of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, definitely. Very good. So, like, talking about the the research, like, again, plugging in the holes in research, uh, you mentioned in your book, uh, in the introduction, that the, quote, literature on South Africa is substantial, but the, like, you know, with, you know, anti-apartheid and stuff, like, certainly growing up in the Western world, like, we hear a lot more about um, South Africa and apartheid and Nelson Mandela and so on, and a little bit about African National Congress and stuff, but you know, about Mozambique, like just, this is anecdotal, but my, my wife is, her background is from that area, from Mozambique. And um, she's the first Mozambican person I've ever met. (laughs) So it's quite, it's quite interesting. Uh, So it kind of shows like, so what you mentioned about literature in South Africa is there's a lot more that makes a lot of sense. But so you mentioned that there's not as much history written about Portugal's African colonies. So aside from language, perhaps, what's the big difference between studying, you know, nationalist movements in Angola, Mozambique, and, you know, versus South Africa, or like even Zimbabwe, Kenya, and, and like, and even the, like the French, um, like French speaking movements in Africa, too, is there, what were some of the big differences you noticed? Yes, uh, I think this is a complex, uh, complex issue, and the, the answer would not be, there would not be one single answer. I think any discipline, part of it is to do with resources and access, because uh, in in the Anglo-Saxon English-speaking academia, of course, there's always been more connection to, say, South Africa or in England, where where I'm currently based, to East Africa, Uh, Mm -hmm. perhaps more interested, obviously, in Mao, Mao, Kenya, Um, and um, in uh, South Africa, you know, of course, it's really important uh, country, you know, also yeah. 
from an economic uh, standpoint, from a political standpoint, fascinating history, you know, very, very difficult, violent one of apartheid. So I understand why right. people naturally drawn to look at South Africa um, and uh, such a complicated story, African National Congress, Mandela, you know, these are the things, as you said, that people know a lot about, maybe more are passionate about, interested in. Mm -hmm. So so on one hand on the other hand of course there is a little bit more access to archives you have fairly decent access and a range of archives in uh, pretoria and um, perhaps even in cape town uh, so kind of uh, johannesburg so there is a bit more archival access than say in um, mozambique or guinea bissau and angola probably in the most yeah. complicated also politically where yeah. uh, there's a still dominance of one party mm -hmm. basically that had controlled the liberation movement and obviously this is a much more authoritarian regime mm -hmm. than say in south africa so access is also complicated yeah but there is there is interest and i think it's partly linguistic because of course a lot more is written say in portuguese about exactly the Portuguese colonies and liberation moments and so on, that uh, the researchers in the West are not as aware of. It's a very kind of niche. We tend to re read stuff that's written in English, you know, <laughs> yeah. speaking audience. Um, yeah. So that's that's probably part part of the answer. Yeah, that would that makes a lot of sense. What about like you're originally from uh from from russia like did you about you moved to england as a you moved to the uk as a teenager so i guess that sort of answers my question <laughs> but i was going to ask about what about in russian academia so you as we'll talk about further in this interview and also you mentioned in your book and also you know because a lot of you know the the nationalist movements in africa were, or in portuguese colonies specifically were inspired had marxist inspiration and connections with the with the soviet uh you know a little bit of the leadership you talk more about elites and so on so but what is what is in the russian archives that's also relevant like in russian language academia is there a lot of russian research or soviet old so former soviet research into these um wars that we were going to talk about yeah well of course you have to distinguish between the soviet period and post 1991 when the soviet union collapsed um, very different yeah there is some continuities, but there's very different eras because in the USSR, research into such topics was you know, highly restricted. And, mm -hmm. you know, as in the West, archives were not available because, you know, just there was no much time that had, you know, that, that was all happening in the 60s and 70s. So obviously researchers in the 70s or historians uh, or kind of would not have access to uh, materials at the time but uh, what has happened uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union actually in the 90s a lot of archival material became spontaneously and some, somewhat haphazardly available to yeah. both uh, Russian and Western scholars or you know scholars of all the world yeah um, then a lot of this material was reclassified but what has mm -hmm. happened in the past five years or so, almost counterintuitively, is that a lot of this material 
specifically from the Central Committee and the International Department that dealt with um, foreign liberation movements to both uh, to, to both foreign and domestic researchers. So mm -hmm. that's why lucky to have been able to use a lot of this new archival material that has become available on in the past five years or so. So wow. of course, a lot of this material is classified, but a lot has become available up until the mid seventies. That's mm -hmm. why we can tell now the story of Soviet re foreign relations actually much better, you know, obviously until recent events when travel and other things have become near impossible. But for the war in Ukraine, that's actually has been um, uh, when you could still access the documents. Mm -hmm. uh, you see a lot more than, say, you could see in the 2000s. Mm. Okay, yeah, it's kind of a weird uh, zone. Like, I, I understand the KGB archives are not, not open still. Yes, right. of course. The KGB or the JRU archives are not open still. But right. because of the way uh, this worked, uh, the main organ within the Central Committee the main body uh, was the international department, which dealt, right. you know, it was a political organ which relations with the liberation movements. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, ANC or uh, or MPLA or Frelimo, the Mozambique Liberation Front. So, mm -hmm. uh, they would the the document the documents of that organ, which was within the Central Committee, the, the documents of that organ became available. Yes, partly available. So, yeah. and of course. Uh, you would have because it was kind of an organ where all of the diplomats would be sending the materials to but also the KGB or the JRU would be writing reports kind of overview reports of what's happening on the ground they would also send those materials to the international department and quite a few of these have become available via this organ via the documents the files of the international department so these so, uh yeah, well, these KGB and GRU operatives have kind of given historians a loophole. Like, okay, our archives are closed, but the CC, the CCCPSU archives are open. Yeah, because they had to, because they basically worked for the international department in a sense. Um, yeah. You know, they were doing the uh, kind of the work, right? The intelligence work, so that mm -hmm. then they could send it to further higher up the chain, obviously to the head of the KGB, but also there would be copies to an international department who also needed access to that information and who didn't have True. access to that information. And mm -hmm. these are the files that uh, you can read, uh, luckily. But of course, it doesn't contain any uh, very, very little, almost to no uh, details about actual sources clandestine sources or right yeah about their operations on the ground so that's all still classified in the archives of the kgb and the jerry mm, so you you can have a good general picture but if, uh, to actually have to you you don't have enough access to actually write a bio of an agent you have enough to tell this is what i've this is what this agent has done but you can't really say you couldn't write a bio about him uh, yeah, no, I don't think you would even could write about specific people, no. But you could you could kind of trace very fundamentally the views, the general views mm -hmm. of, say, KGB 
about a certain topic. So because right. they, 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 they had two functions. One was information gathering from all sorts of sources. Another was uh, doing kind of op special measures, uh, operations, mm -hmm. right? Recruiting sources yeah. on the ground. So the mm -hmm. first part, you could get to kind of the general overviews, right? So mm -hmm. kind of your analytical, analytical reports or like what's happening, right? Uh, right, but right. the other stuff, uh, which which is not available. Yeah. I'm just saying in Russia, obviously you you can get to that stuff in Czechoslovak archives and Czech archives. Yes. So, but that's yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's another way to open. And you mentioned Czech, uh, old Czechoslovakia a lot, so that we'll go a bit more into that too. Uh, so, how did you conduct your research? Like, I guess whatever archives you had, and I'm a, uh, yeah. I believe you mentioned in your book you traveled to. Angola, you traveled to Mozambique. Actually, I, the I did uh, the way it progressed because I I did research over a number of quite many years. So first mm. I looked a lot at the archives, first of all in Russia, but then in Eastern Europe as well. I went to GDR, Poland, to Bulgaria, and to the Czech Republic mm -hmm. because. A lot of the Russian materials were initially unavailable. Right. They were initially unavailable. That's why I had to finish my PhD initially. Uh, yeah. I had to... So I went to a lot of Eastern European archives and access there, especially in Czech Republic, is, is incredibly good. Um, right. Including to the intelligence, uh, intelligence um, files um, of the Czech intelligence service. So mm -hmm. uh, this is what I did initially. And then once the Russian archives started opening up, I did a lot more work there um, in the central archives and the records of the international department. But then of course, as you do, you know, as this project, some of these projects start to spiral, especially the very long ones, the other side, right? I wanted to talk to the people, uh, some of the mm -hmm. protagonists of the story on the African yeah. side. So mm -hmm. I went to, to Mozambique, to Maputo. Mm -hmm. I went to Cabo Verde and I did quite a bit of work and I, I stayed for a little bit in Guinea-Bissau, in Bissau. I did not go to Angola. Oh, you didn't go to Angola. Oh, okay. I, I didn't go to Angola. Yes. So for practical and political reasons, much more difficult to do. Right. Um, so that's why there's a little bit of a disbalance, disbalance perhaps in my book. Uh, there's mm. a lot more detail on me of texture to somewhat I'm writing about Guinea-Bissau and maybe right. less so about Angola, which I tried to oh, rectify. I see. Yeah. But this is the oral history part is, is a little bit more skewed towards Guinea-Bissau story. Uh, oh, okay. I understand. Okay. Well, that's very good. Um, so, uh, so kind of going into the uh, kind of content of the, of the book and so on. So, just kind of, if you don't mind giving like an early history uh, of the Portuguese colonies in Africa. So you mentioned Cape Verde, there's also Sao Tome uh, and um, Guinea-Bissau, Angola and Mozambique. Uh, so these were colonized by Portugal in the 16th century. So in the context of, you know, the age of discovery and the competition with Spain. Um, what about other connections or colonial projects in these countries before that time, before the 16th century? Like I know that Mozambique is very much connected to the Indian Ocean trade routes. Are you able to give like a little bit of a, uh, explain a little bit of background of the history before colonization of these areas, like a little, very briefly? 
Yes, <laughs> to summarize uh, almost five centuries in, in a couple Yeah, of that's the thing, yeah. <laughs> I can totally do that. Well, I think when we're talking about formal colonialism, we're talking about kind of territorial conquest and control. I mean, the way that European colonialism, at least initially, or very early on, on development, Portuguese one, was a little bit more complicated because, mm. of course, in initially the Portuguese uh, crown, but also the traders and all the people, the settlers who kind of were interested in in that project were just interested in profit rather than right. controlling the whole interior of Africa. So mm -hmm. when first Portuguese uh, started kind of exploring right that 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 continent, they around 14th, 15th centuries. Uh, they set up uh, their kind of little posts, trading routes all across uh, the coast, all across mm. the African coast, right? Right. So, um, and not not just in these three colonies, you know, they had kind of a network of um, of little ports that mm -hmm. connected their shipping routes that allowed them ultimately to uh, to engage in slaving. Yeah. Uh, uh, that you know connected um, connected kind of Africa to uh, the Americas, uh, but also to kind of to Europe. So those are kind of a network that Portuguese were just one of the players, an important early player in right. that that slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, that, um, for example, like Angola, of course, they hoped that they would find a lot of silver. They didn't, so they just started yeah. engaging massive slaving um, right. that completely depopulated um, that that part of Africa. Oof. But of course, yeah. towards the end of the 19th century, when you have increasingly intense competition between uh, the European colonial powers for uh, for areas of control and for for sources of income, uh, you you've got uh, kind of a drive towards trying to assert formal territorial control mm -hmm. over specific areas. And in that competition, uh, you know, which kind of ultimately um, peaks in the Congress of Berlin, uh, the Portuguese, with the help of the British, who are their allies, they get kind of, they, they have greater control over these three zones, right, that later become Guinea, Bissau, Angola, Mozambique, and uh, they try to assert some form of control, territorial control of these areas, um, and this is how they get these three colonies, which are, of course, very disjointed, yeah. right? Very far um, apart from each other. Very far apart, you know, Mozambique, obviously East Africa has connected much, much more to South Africa than mm -hmm. to the other Portuguese colonies, you know, Angola, right. you know, is, uh, of course, in uh, West Central Africa, mm -hmm. and Guinea-Bissau, uh, yet again, you know, is closest to Guinea, French Guinea, and has kind of connections there. So these are kind of three disjointed territories, but mm -hmm. they try to uh, make the best of it. It, which basically means extracting resources um, for the domestic and up until you know later uh, successive Portuguese governments and they tried to make those colonies profitable mm -hmm. for them for, 
Expo Portugal, and uh, they they try to do it by extracting uh, natural kind of resources, setting up uh, plantations, cotton growing, coffee growing. Of course, now mm -hmm. Angola is really, really big for um, coffee. Mozambique, mm -hmm. you know, it's a huge push to make it uh, a colony that grows a lot of cotton. Um, and they do it by uh, by basically uh, engaging in forced labor practices. So using the labor of um, of Africans mm -hmm. and a lot of it is forced labor to grow cheap cotton, say, for the Portuguese yeah. textile industry. That's 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 the basic kind of shape of Portuguese colonies, which is both similar to other cases, but also slightly distinct because, of course, Portugal is one of the poorest uh, European countries. So there's very very to no investment in infrastructure, uh, right? Schools at all in their colonies. Very interesting point you just make about Portugal being one of the poorest European countries, uh, because, you know, uh, one, you know, I, I spent almost a year in Mozambique. Uh, I lived with my wife's family there. And so it's kind of like I noticed that the infrastructure was kind of poor and everything like that. And I've and I had heard stories about the same in Angola. So I was kind of I kind of had this uh, question in my mind. It would be very interesting to visit other former Portuguese colonies like Angola and maybe Sao Tome and maybe even Brazil to some extent. Um, maybe not Macau, but I think that would be a different story because it's so small. Uh, but it would be interesting to see like kind of the, the the infrastructure in like if they're similar. And because I know in South Africa, the the, the roads are much better. Uh, I know it. I've, I've never been to Zimbabwe, but I do know that the roads are generally much better and stuff like that. So I was wondering if that was like one of the big differences between a Portuguese colony and an English one. Yeah, I mean, initially, of course, uh, you know, down now it's has been some time since this is the called you know the the colonialism ended. But yes, initially, the Portuguese they invested very very little um, in the colonies, and right. that concerned all aspects of life and infrastructure, and only, in fact. Uh, an important aspect of Portuguese colonialism is that a very, very small minority uh, in the colonies actually had Portuguese citizenship. Without Portuguese citizenship, you had extremely limited access to schools and you had to pay special taxes. And in fact, this is when you, uh, if you were not a Portuguese citizens, citizen, you um, would be you know, employed in a you could be in a forced labor situation. You could be basically pulled pulled up to you know, build the roads for no money. Uh, so th this is this was kind of the structure, the racialized structure, and that uh, it had uh, it it was a racialized order because those people who were of multiracial descent uh, had you know majority of them did have um, Portuguese citizenship. And those who weren't, you know, they had to become assimilado and it was extremely difficult to become an or assimilated person in the right. context of Portuguese colonies because you had to kind of pay a big sum of money. You had to prove that you were basically Portuguese by way of your culture. You had to speak kind of speak the language and you had to live in a certain way. 
So mm -hmm. only a small minority of people across the Portuguese colonies had citizenship rights and were right. exempt, exempt from things like forced labor um, and, and so on. So I'm talking about this up until the 1960s. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then kind of like in your in, in the book, uh, you mentioned 1959, 1960s as kind of the, I guess, inflection point when everything is kind of like, okay, there's kind of a buildup of, of resistance against the Portuguese colonial power. People start having ideas about, about Marxism and liberation and stuff like that. And then, um, uh, and then eventually it becomes, I guess, the Angolan uprising is the first, the, the kind of like the point you mentioned where it's like, this is where the wars actually start. Uh, in Portuguese Africa. Um, what about, like, what are some of the parties and the people involved in each, like in Guinea-Bissau, uh, I guess, Amokar Cabral with the PAIGC, Angola and PLA, and then Mozambique with uh, Edward Manlane with Frelimo after there were a number of parties and then Frelimo kind of becomes the dominant power or dominant nationalist party there. If, um, what are your impressions and like uh, of these uh, or summaries of these parties and people, and and what were the Soviet impressions of them? Yes, as you mentioned, in uh, in Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, starting from I mean, the, since the nineteenth century, there was of course resistance to Portuguese right. more generally, and there were quite a lot of you know revolts and uprisings overall. But where uh -huh. if we are talking about kind of modern nationalist movement right or kind of more contemporary one uh and there's there's there are lots of groups uh that in all three contexts start to emerge both in the colonies especially in urban settings in the capitals like Luanda uh, or or Maputo and also in the neighboring countries because there's uh, there's a lot of immigration from the Portuguese colonies to the neighboring country, say mm -hmm. from Mozambique to South Africa or um, South Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Right. So these Mozambican or Angola migrants, they oftentimes set up kind of self-help self-help organizations in neighboring countries that oftentimes grew into kind of a more of a movements that aspire to independence to campaign for independence okay uh, mm -hmm. first they thought many of the film that that could be a negotiated settlement with the portuguese like they happened say in uh, tanganyika right um, right or in guinea but mm -hmm. very quickly by the early 60s many of them realized that negotiated settlement a peaceful settlement independence would not be possible in the Portuguese case because the Portuguese dictator Antonio Salazar was right. not willing to let the Portugals uh -huh. go, right? Unlike yeah. the British or the French eventually. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the difference here because eventually a lot of these kind of local groups they hope for negotiated settlement. And there are many different groups, right? So there's not just these three. So there's a lot of conflict and between these groups and kind of there are a lot of different ideas about independence and relationship with the Portuguese how this is going to work out eventually eventually by the mid-60s uh, there are three kind of parties that emerged in Angola, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau that 
would become dominant, especially mm. in Mozambique. As I mentioned in Guinea-Bissau, that is the PIHC, Party for mm-hmm. Independence of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. In uh, Mozambique, that's Frilimo, the, Frili- the Mozambique Liberation Front. Mm-hmm. And in Angola, this is the country where the, the, the situation is much more complicated because there are three nationalist movements that all three of them have quite substantial local African but also international support. Right. Uh, you have they have the MPLA, which is a kind of a movement based around Luanda, the capital, but you also have the FNLA, a group which is based in the neighboring Congo Kinshasa, which oh. has substantial support from the government of Congo Kinshasa, but also from mm-hmm. the United States. Right. And this is where the Angolan games becomes quite different. Uh, to say Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau because in Angola the nationalist movement not only is split but the uh, all the rival nationalist groups they receive both local African but also international mm-hmm. support right right mm-hmm. yeah that's that's a very different case um yeah and I, I you mentioned that the, the first in Angola the you know I, uh kind of the the spark that lights everything is when um when one of the i guess it was called the i guess the leopoldville school if you want to put it that way uh it was like a pro uh anti-colonial but pro more pro capitalist pro western um faction invaded northern angola and then the mpla was actually caught maybe a little bit off guard actually yeah, that's the impression i got from when i read that in your book or at least they the mpla wasn't the first to react Yes, I mean this. This is a very long story of competition between <laughs> various forms of nationalism and various visions of what Angola should become after right. independence. And this competition you mentioned between this kind of Luanda-based group that's obviously based in exile during the, the time of Portuguese anti-colonial wars, and another group which is based in Leopoldville or Kinshasa, led by Holden Roberto is a mm-hmm. movement that aspires towards a kind of a American type of modernity, you know, the more interested yeah. in capitalism, the MPLA and Agostino Neto, the leader of MPLA is more interested in socialism in a way, and they have con- close connections with, with the Soviet Union and help from the Soviet Union. And the FNLA has support from uh, the Congolese Kinshasa government that are also aligned um, you know, with Joseph Mobutu aligned to the United States. Right. So, mm-hmm. And all of that competition is ongoing, you know, in the 1960s and the 70s. So when Portugal, uh, you know, in 1974, when there's a revolution in Portugal, there is a vacuum of power suddenly in Angola. And competition between these local groups, uh, local Angolan nationalist movements, becomes way much much more intense it was always going on going on right but it becomes right, much right. more intense and mm-hmm. where uh it becomes a kind of a cold war story as well because each group seeks international support um, right so that they can get uh they can dominate uh political power and you know after angola becomes independent Right. Mm, okay, that's interesting. And I believe in the end, MPLA won out, right? 
and in the end, MPLA wins out. Um, yeah. in, initially, after after Angola becomes uh, de jure independent, but then the civil war continues into the 1980s and actually into the 1990s. Um, so, yeah. yeah, the complicated yeah. story. Yeah, <laughs> similar to Mozambique too. Independence in 1975 and then uh, Mo versus Renamo. But I guess Renamo doesn't really come into play in like the context of your book, but <laughs> that's a little bit different. I guess a little, a lot of what we talked about already is preamble <laughs> for uh, kind of what we're talking about coming up to. Uh, so uh, kind of going into the background of Soviet support of anti-colonial nationalist movements in Portuguese Africa, the the Soviet Union's you know had a communist internationalism obviously that kind of fluctuated between internationalism and um you know you know the the great seal or the coat of arms I guess you could say of the Soviet Union says in Russian you know proletariat of all countries unite um and it you know it says that in other languages too of the so Soviet um the languages found throughout the Soviet Union but then eventually Stalin focused on socialism in one country. You know, this is after the failed invasion of Poland after the civil war. And then, you know, eventually you met, as you mentioned in your book too, that, you know, Stalin was focused on defeating Nazi Germany and, and, and so on. So he focused more on socialism in one country and he was anti-Trotskyite who was more, Trotsky advocated more for world communist revolution. He was much more, I don't know, optimistic for communism's chances and much more radical, I suppose. So how did how did this whole situation like Soviet internationalism affect Africa maybe before World War II? Did it have much of an effect before World War II? Or um, and then how did Khrushchev and his denunciation of Stalinism kind of change things and be, make the Soviet Union more involved in Africa? Maybe that's two questions at once, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Well, the interwar story is fascinating and actually quite complex right uh, because once the communist the, once the the soviet set up the third communist international in 1919 um they of course try want to promote international revolution uh, but uh, of course their attitudes um towards how this should be done and their priorities also foreign policy change mm -hmm. so um, in the 1920s and the 1930s, and you kind of allude to some of that. Um, actually, uh, after 20, uh, after 1928, and up to around 1932, this is actually the peak of of Soviet and kind of common turn support for Black liberation, because ah, okay. uh, um, and this is of course is coincides with um, of this industrialization and collectivization drive in the USSR, and there's a sense that a uh, revolution is coming, and the capitalist countries, uh, there's they are kind of competing, and revolution is is kind of getting closer. Mm. And what we need to do um, to aid this process is to speed up and help anti-colonial movements. Right. So we can break up European colonies. But of course, in the mid-30s, once the threat of Nazi Germany is pretty mm -hmm. obvious, these priorities shift. And yeah. you know, from Stalin's point of view, it's much more important to have 
a good working relationship with Britain and France rather than supporting the Brit, you know, kind of anti-colonial movements. But right. there's the shift there. So it's it's this this is a complex story of the interwar yeah. period. Yeah. Right. Uh, so and uh, during the peak, you know, from 28 to 32, the Comintern makes an attempt, and the African Americans are really, really closely involved in that. Uh, but mm-hmm. also some activists the Caribbean to spread the message uh, to the colonies, but they also call on European communist parties to spread the revolutionary message in the colonies, including in Africa. Right. Um, and, uh, they try to do so. And you have uh, quite a few kind of Africans coming to USSR. Many of them are interested in Marxists, but some of them are not. Uh, some of them study in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Um, so they t- kind of try to set up connection between anti-colonial and, and Black uh, ac- activists across the world, across the Black Atlantic uh, in the 1930s. But of course, as already mentioned, towards the late 30s, Soviet priorities are very different. And eventually the Comintern is disbanded in 1943. So right. There is a very rich history um, of Soviet support for anti-colonial movements and for anti-racist campaigns during the interwar period. Um, so, and of course, the South African Communist Party is set up in the 1920s and it becomes part mm. of the national. Wow. Right? Example. So again, there is a rich history around that relationship. Yeah, but mm-hmm. as you mentioned, and you're right, the war puts a hold on a lot of these things. And straight after the war, Stalin is not interested in uh, the so-called third world, uh, and it, it's only um, when Nikita Khrushchev succeeds Stalin, who dies mm-hmm. in 1953, that the Soviet Union sort of rediscovers the third <laughs> world as it right. was known at the time, newly mm-hmm. emerging in Africa um, and tries to establish relations with leaders in the third world, including with African leaders okay. um, and moments. Yeah. So what about how was communism kind of promoted in Africa? Like, was it the same as the rest of the third world? I know I've done some study in, um, you know, the Soviet Union and in the Middle East. And what they often did was make connections with local nationalist parties not even necessarily communist ones but like kind of anti-colonial nationalist parties like the the Ba'athists in Iraq and uh in Syria and they also had a lot of like expositions like it was a lot of cultural connection and like radio like scholarships to study in in the Soviet Union and uh you know reaching out to the Arab world through education for example and you mentioned in your book about the writers conference in Tashkent in October 1958 and this kind of created initial communist or Soviet contact with African African nationalists. What was the purpose and the effect of this conference? Um, and was it mostly just cultural, or was it also like technical support, like like engineer help for engineering projects, like it was for the Aswan Dam and in Egypt and so on, or was it more like cultural and making these initial first connections? I would say yes to to both of your propo- proposals. Yes, a lot of this starts with cultural exchange initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soviet Union, but also other socialist countries uh, in Eastern Europe, but also China, uh, yeah. they 
they start putting in the 50s they start putting these events like the writers conference the famously um 1957 uh, congress of uh, of world youth uh, in moscow and they try to forge connections with um, elites in the africa asia and latin america inviting them to the soviet union and forging these links through cultural exchange assigning cultural exchange agreements so that say um, a music group would come to USSR and then somebody from the USSR would go to a particular country. So mm, there's okay. all this very rich kind of cultural exchange that starts happening. Uh, they start, start sending movies, starts uh, trying to sell Soviet films in mm -hmm. the third world, uh, organize uh, a film festival um, in, in Tashkent, organize writers' conferences. That's on one hand. On the other hand, if we're talking about independent African states, uh, a huge thing that tried to do in the 1950s is to um, to support economic development right. in these countries and actually start to promote um, what Alessandro Andola has recently called Soviet kind of model of development. Okay. Uh, in in um, initially in West Africa, Guinea um, and Guinea, Ghana, and Mali is kind of becomes in the late fifties kind of a beacon of what Soviet style modernization could achieve in these countries. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's initially both cultural and very very substantially economic help and aid to African countries. Uh, so they basically try to, because the ideas and Khrushchev kind of calls on the West that socialism and capitalism can compete peacefully and the third right. world would be an arena for that peaceful competition. So we will show you that mm. social development and with the help of the Soviet Union, uh, you can actually achieve rapid economic growth. But this is possible because the first generation of African leaders, of course, are very suspicious of capitalism because to yeah. them, capitalism meant exploitation. Yeah, slavery so, and so on. Yes, so a lot of them were interested in kind of alternative ideas and socialist ideas. Um, kind of many of them try to make their own vision, actually, which is, you know, not non-Soviet, non American kind of a lot of this around African socialism. So try to combine some of these ideas with local traditions. So mm. that's why there's a lot of interest um, in, in some of these ideas around communalism, sort of the state, the role of the state should be a vehicle for modernization. You kind of mentioned that, you know, uh, Khrushchev and the, I guess the uh, Khrushchev and the denunciation of Stalin, denunciation of Stalinism and so on kind of wakes the Soviet Union up to the third world again. <laughs> like we're aware of it now again. Um, but at the same time, you do kind of mention that Africa was still a little bit low on the Soviet priority because I guess maybe Europe was much more important, you know, with Berlin, East Germany and competition with NATO and so on. But if Africa was a bit lower uh, in priority, why did many bureaucrats still support in African independence groups. It was still kind of like a way of promoting, again, this was uh, this peaceful competition. Yeah, I think I think there's a twofold. It, it's true. 
when we're talking about Africa, we have to realize that, you know, it wasn't, you know, the, the most important priority for the the, the Soviet leadership, right? For right. the likes of Brezhnev or so on, especially in the uh, late 60s or 70s, are much more concerned about competition, about United States, about Western Europe, about China. Mm. So Africa is not a priority. Right. Yet it is important. It is there, and they, they provoke kind of, but it's it's not a priority. So that's why, and that's one of my arguments in the book is that uh, kind of a lower ranking, middle ranking bureaucrats kind of take over most of the daily day to day kind of thinking around policy, also mm-hmm. conducting and kind of forging relations with African revolutionaries. A lot of this stems from this like, kind of late fifties cultural exchange when many of them first meet uh, kind of African revolutionaries, say Cabral or Neto for the first time right. in this, uh, during these events, and they forge kind of personal relationships with them. They, and many of them uh, are genuinely, I would say, I would argue, genuinely feel a, a certain camaraderie, a certain kind of solidarity for mm-hmm. the cause of African liberation, uh, I mean, bear in mind, many of them had gone through the Second World War. There were many of them had kind of military backgrounds, experience. So they they do kind of feel this, this camaraderie on a personal level, but also they do believe, many of them, that socialism is generally a better system than capitalism. Yeah. So, um, and this is where, uh, and again, the, the kind of people I'm talking are. Uh, bureaucrats, but also members of the international journalists, uh, members of the of intelligence services, they mm-hmm. kind of forge these personal relations that are also shaped, kind of the opinions of Africans are shaped by personal considerations, but also uh, by their outlook, their worldview, you know, for, if not, you don't want to call it ideology, but let's call it worldview. So right, okay. uh, that's that's how they see them. And many of them kind of lobby, start lobbying on their behalf, you know, up the chain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because we see that's a hierarchical way of of making decisions in the Soviet system, but you you have some lobbying power, right? If you can mm-hmm. uh, you can uh, kind of push for certain decisions. So that's right. why that's how it emerges and this is one of my arguments that the military uh, become increasingly invested in the liberation movements because, of course, they're involved in supplying them weapons and training a lot of these men because uh, there there is active guerrilla war going on mm-hmm. starting, say, 61, 63 in uh, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, and Angola. Right. So that's how they get kind of pulled in. Well, you mentioned the failure of the Soviet Union's support of um, kind of uh, Patrice Lumumba in Zaire, uh, the former former Belgian colony, um, you know, because Mobutu, Mobutu uh, Patrice Lumumba was killed and then Mobutu took over uh, more of a pro-Western uh, figure. And then the USSR then shifted to clandestine means that you're just mentioning, you know, with KGB and, um, you know, bureaucrats and, and so on. 
Um, and you call it you call it Cold War on the cheap. <laughs> so does that mean like do you mean by that like um, you know it's a lot cheaper to send a bureaucrat and somebody to maybe teach someone and lobby and stuff like that rather than send a bunch of anti-air missiles like they did to Syria? <laughs> Is that kind of like why you call it Cold War on the cheap? A little bit. I mean, of course, it's a moniker, but what I'm trying right. to say is, is that uh, in the Congo, the Soviets very quickly realized that uh, they a, don't have the means to project real military power all the right. way across to sub-Saharan Africa in a very effective way, especially in the 1960s. Uh, it's very hard for them, you know, to send suddenly ships, right, or, or to even flying planes right now we, we live in a world where you know air travel is 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 so quick but even the the way that kind of planes flew was different in the 1960s then of not, course yeah um so it's much harder than they have there's a lot of talk and rhetoric but they have mm -hmm. very little actual means on the ground to to support their local allies and also, they don't really want to uh, to make uh, you know to, to 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 start a nuclear war because of the Congo, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Desire. Or because yeah. of Patrice Lumumba, you know, this yeah. is also not something they want to do. Interested no. in. <laughs> yeah. So what? Partly what they try to do, I think, using kind of secret intelligence to mm -hmm. affect change why clandestine means is much cheaper because of course there's then deniability right you you don't need um you don't need to send a lot of material aid if if what you can do or try to do right is to right. infiltrate local local nationalist movement or try to kind of forge close or clandestine relationships with with some of the africans right mm -hmm. so it's kind of uh, much cheaper and also from the perspective of the global cold war is also a safer option that's that's why they try to kind of use one of the one of the ways to kind of okay. but, but it's not the only one but of course their power capabilities improved by the mid 70s mm, and that's okay. why somewhere like angola they can actually uh they they, they can uh project their power more effectively by the mid-70s right. than, say, by the mid-1960s. Mm. That's one question I wrote I as I was reading, uh, where it's like, you know, so, like, kind of the effects of the support. Maybe it's a little harder, like we were, you were saying, the KGB and GRU um, intelligence archives are closed, so it's a little hard to say, like, maybe, like, how many pieces of equipment they sent. I remember doing research on Soviet military aid to Syria, and there, there was even like numbers of how many different types of airplanes they sent and stuff like that. Is there that kind of information with how, what they sent to Mozambique and Angola? Like, you know, how many shipments of weapons they sent? Is there any data like that? It's piecemeal. Yeah. Yes, you can find um, you can find some traces in the archive about mm -hmm. quantities and uh, and in terms of both in terms of quantities of weapons but also in terms of how much they spent on all of that but right. it's not even but what i can say is that military support was indeed very substantial to both right. kind of their chosen uh, nationalist movements in angola mm -hmm. mozambique and guinea-bissau 
it was one it was about quantities so yes mm-hmm. of course others were also sending weapons uh you know the cubans or you know czechoslovak and czechoslovaks and bulgarians mm-hmm. and so on right so it did more right they sent more but it was quantities but also don't forget quality of weapons or the type right. of weapon important because if you think about what a guerrilla war is it's you know say that was waged in in mozambique or guinea bissau it's it's uh you are up against as a kind of local african revolutionary nationalist movement you're up against a well equipped fairly well equipped and well well trained army the portuguese mm-hmm. army that mm-hmm. are also supplied with uh, very good weapons from nato right, right. including craft mm-hmm. so if you have control over an air over an airspace like the portuguese were right mm-hmm. it's very difficult to win the war yeah it is yeah mm-hmm. it is if you're being bombed right yeah you, exactly hard to control especially urban areas mm-hmm. uh where there's a kind of significant presence military presence and these are this was fairly effective portuguese army right that was mm-hmm. experienced also because they were in, in in this war for for a long time of course the right. motivation started to, to to change very dramatically by the mid 70s as as it happens with these prolonged wars right but still it was a fairly well trained well equipped army so mm. what the, the soviets do and they do the similar in vietnam is that they provide increasingly more sophisticated weapons that eventually mm-hmm. in the case of guinea bissau uh can shift this advantage that the portuguese have over the airspace uh by okay. providing basically anti-aerial missiles uh right for especially the strela complex that right guinea- like they're equivalent of the stinger missile basically yeah that yeah that it's very easy to hold it's quite mobile so mm-hmm. you can use it move it uh, yeah. so in the context of guerrilla war it's was important oh. um so they start by 1974 when when they received these weapons in guinea-bissau they start shooting down portuguese mm-hmm. aircraft quite Oof, yeah. substantial numbers and in mozambique they also received yes but a little bit later so, uh, and that's what uh, in Guinea-Bissau starts to shift kind of the balance, you know, starts to, con- once right. the Portuguese no longer controlling the skies, they, they have a real problem. It, it doesn't happen in Mozambique, because in Mozambique, of, they received this a little bit later, and Angola, in Angola, the nationalist movements, for a variety of reasons, are not in a good shape by, right. by seven because again because of also internal a lot of internal problems internal splits right but 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 that military aid is substantial and both in terms of quantity in terms of quality Mm -hmm. uh but of course you mentioned scholarships it's not just about military aid you know the soviets also provide scholarships um and a lot of people go study um in the ssr also after independence than before but it's not just military but military is probably the most significant uh when when we're talking about the course of anti-colonial wars in uh angola mozambique and guinea-bissau 
Oh, okay. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, well, one one uh, final point I mentioned about, like, uh, military aid, uh, you know, at least, you know, uh, okay, so as the 70s move on, that makes sense, because, you know, I was about to ask about how your assessment of how effective this war on the cheap, Cold War on the cheap was, but eventually it was. Eventually it was effective as Portugal kind of loses momentum in the fighting, and then Estrelas starts coming in and stuff like that. And then also, um, well, and then Portugal has its own carnation revolution uh, uh, and it, be, you know, Portugal becomes a democracy. Um, but also it's a different context too. Like you, you mentioned, it's hard to get advanced weapons to a militia group like Frilimo or something, but it's a lot easier to send uh, SAM missiles and MiG-21s to Syria or North Korea, which are both, uh, or North Vietnam, which are communist states already, you know, so it's a lot easier to send something that's actually a state, you're not sending uh, something to a militia group, which doesn't, you know, so it's a different, it's a different context. So military aid will, there might be some, but it, you're not going to ship a MiG-21 into the jungle. Yeah, no, you're right. Of course, uh, logistical problems with with transferring these weapons uh, were really, really important and were very substantial. Mm-hmm. And uh, because again, we're talking about very different contexts in Guinea, yeah. Bissau, which is a small country bordering on Guinea. Yeah. Uh, there is a little bit more ease of access because you could, uh, they were just shipping these weapons to the port of Conakry in Guinea. Okay. Mm-hmm. And from there, you could transport it by land to the neighboring Guinea Bissau with relative ease. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, relative ease. Um, I mean, of course, the infrastructure or the infrastructure wasn't ideal, but we were talking about something that was very doable. Uh, mm. When we're talking about, uh, say, uh, the case of Angola, and in the 60s and 70s, a lot of the war was happening in eastern Angola, which bordered on Zambia and Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about both really, really long and enormous spaces over which this weaponry had to be transported via via Dar es Salaam, via Lusaka. Again, you know, a lot of it was on foot. Right. So uh, the local authorities had a complicated, oftentimes complicated Mm -hmm. relationships with liberation movements, and we're not always too thrilled uh, when you have an armed group in your country right. you know, receiving weapons yeah. <laughs> uh, from a foreign power. So also the host countries, African host countries that hosted these liberation moments, oftentimes also you know, had a problem, problematic relationship with them and allowed them to kind of engage in this guerrilla war, guerrilla war because they were committed to African liberation in, in general, right? So somebody like right. Julius Nyerere in Tanganyika, most importantly, or um, Kenneth Kaunda in Zambia. At the same time, of course, they wanted to control these moments to a certain extent because, again, um, if you have a local armed group you know, who are kind of armed to their teeth uh, and potentially um, can intervene or have some kind of uh, 
role in your internal politics, right? And so this was a complicated dynamics also internally. Um, so, but but in the end, uh, a lot of these weapons, sophisticated weapons, did reach kind of their targets uh, because. I guess the aim from the liberation movements was not necessarily to kind of overwhelm the Portuguese military, right? Right, but yeah, that's not guerrilla warfare, yeah. Or it was would be very hard, but to make it as difficult as possible for the Portuguese to say, um, as they did say, that this is just a bunch of terrorists, right? Communist terrorists. Right, and, right. And, and, and there is no problem for us. Uh, and they wanted to make it costly for them they wanted to make it difficult so that internally within the military the mood uh, would change would shift and that that's that's what they're trying to say they're trying to um uh, to affect change within the portuguese society and military mm-hmm. so that the cost of war would become very high yeah very much like very much like in Vietnam. Yeah, yes. So so and eventually in Guinea-Bissau they did they did make it happen because of course if you're a if you're an officer and mm-hmm. see this war continuing for years and years and years and you throw your your people and material at at that war and nothing is happening but actually mm-hmm. Uh, you have your your aircraft starting being shot down, increasing numbers. Yeah. You start raising questions about mm-hmm. how winnable yeah. is this war in the end? Right, exactly. Yeah, it just becomes uh, you you can win every battle, but you can lose the war just from the exhaustion. Just like the U.S. <laughs> in Vietnam. Yeah, I really want to ask about this because this is like your main point of the the book, kind of talking again about this the bureaucrats and everything like that. But it, you specifically look at, um, you know, the, the Czechoslovakia and Czech and the Czech, uh, Czechoslovak intelligence. Um, you especially look at um, uh, a person, uh, I forget, I'm sorry, I forget his name. <laughs> I forget the operatives, uh, the operatives name. Uh, but, uh, and so you mentioned that the Czech intelligence and the USSR intelligence get get together and kind of plan to support the, you know, starting with the MPLA in, in uh, Angola. How did, how did this happen? And kind of like, how did this, um, and, and what was the, what was the effect of this plan? Like, what were the details? What were they actually doing in this plan? Yes. Uh, well, the story of, of full, the full story of cooperation between different uh, intelligence services in Eastern Europe and the USSR, it still has to be written. We do not know all the deal details of how it worked, but we do know that, of course, there was a lot of conversation and exchange. And in fact, uh, the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia intelligence services that started mm-hmm. kind of having these coordination meetings, right, where they would basically get together and try to make a plan a joint plan of kind of operations in the third world so right and similar things happened with others but we do not know the full story yet so in but we do not know we do know that in africa for example uh the kgb and the czechoslovak um, intelligence uh, the stb they did try to coordinate activities 
and they tried to engage in joint operation. They would share information. And uh, the Czechoslovaks overall were really active, um, actively involved in supporting liberation movements in the third world, in the third world more generally, starting from the late 50s. Um, and uh, of course, they were actively, they had a very advanced and developed arms industry in Czechoslovakia. So they became kind of a go-to capital for many, uh, say, kind of African leaders to go and uh, kind of forge these kind of arms sales deals. And uh, they became important uh, initially in Angola and uh, Guinea-Bissau as supporting, kind of basically sending cash, sending weapons and training uh, some of these kind of African revolutionaries. So we know all of this because unlike in the Soviet case, in the Russian case, uh, the full archive of the Czechoslovak intelligence is open to us. Right. We can get to the details, not just these uh, overviews, analytical overviews, but we can actually get to the specific operational details, including up to the looking into the backgrounds of the operatives uh, and what they did. So yes, the story of, of the Czechoslovak operative you referred to, his name was, uh, his na code name was Alter. He basically- Oh, Alter, yeah. He, code name. He, he came to Guinea, uh, Conakry in 1960, and it was his first assignment abroad, I, I think one of the first kind of important assignments abroad. And he basically set up shop there in Conakry okay. and trying to forge relations with different African nationalist revolutionaries. Uh, he quite liked Cabral. And yeah. He kind of sponsored his trip to Prague. And then he kind of tried to, he offered that we should recruit this promising young man. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is this is kind of where I, I how I explain how these kind of personal relationships mattered, and this is um, how the Czechoslovakia became an important early supporter of the Pajasi in Guinea-Bissau. Part of it was through these clandestine connections. Yeah, because you you focus a lot on the personal connections. Is that because? Uh, again, it's Cold War on the cheap and, you know, it's not really pot like we talked about the logistical problems of sending massive military aid to a PAIGC, for example. What kind of personal connections do they have? Like, I, I really I found it interesting. You talk about, you know, Alter recruiting Amokar Cabral in Guinea-Bissau. It's almost it. It almost seemed like they recruited him as an as an agent to work for them. That's what almost what it seemed like. Uh, yeah, no, this this would be this would not be uh, the most exactly correct reading oh, okay. of the story. So no, they did not recruit him as agent. He was never an agent. Mm, okay. uh, but, or they called him, but indeed they proposed to recruit him, and they kind of said that they did recruit him as so-called clandestine or cl confidential contact which was because a different classification, but they're important, which was different to a paid agent. 
mm. but they you often use this kind of ambiguous classifications mm. which uh, and again this is where we come to the archive because think about it if you're not that you are, but if you are yeah, a yeah. <laughs> young, young intelligence officer in Conakry, it's your first assignment, uh -huh. you you also want to be promoted and you want That's to true, yeah. show to your superiors that you've done this great deed, right? Right, so right. You, you obviously big yourself up, you know, and you big mm -hmm. yourself up. It's like, yeah, I recruited Milkar Cabral. Got this guy but, on our side, yeah. Yeah, so he is our clandestine contract, and his code name is Secretar, right? That's uh -huh. that's not position. <laughs> but but in reality, when even if you look at the archive, what mm -hmm. you see is that actually Cabral they, they were trying to get him to do things, right? right. But he didn't do the things. He, they, <laughs> So that they asked him to do not like in a cold war movie where we have somebody kind of copying documents in like a little dim lit office right right, so, right. uh cabral yeah he probably knew what was going on mm -hmm. but he obviously needed support for his movement mm -hmm. uh, he needed arms he needed the cash in the training so he kind of agreed to share information but uh with 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 them and about what's happening in africa developments but he was very mm -hmm. reluctant to go anywhere beyond that and say right. there was a case where they tried they tried him to get somebody uh from his group to to go to Czechoslovakia and spy on African students studying Czechoslovakia. He would not outright refuse, but right. he would never find such a person would never emerge, right? He was like, mm -hmm. No, I can't find anybody. I'm sorry, like I can't. So I, nobody is available. <laughs> This right <laughs> okay oh interesting so, so he you know managed to kind of shape this relationship uh in his at his own advantage in his own advantage ah. he had a tremendous amount of agency in this and the more famous he became the less he was willing to engage with any of these guys mm. so but especially that soviets became much more important um donor to the pajasena czechoslovaks and right he, he he kind of but because he was a very good diplomat you know he right. was just but he, he managed to kind of manage the relation well but obviously if you're looking just at the archive mm -hmm. uh, there's all this talk about how he was like the big clandestine contact but if you right. actually look into the details of actually what he did or didn't do mm -hmm. you see that he had a lot more a, a agency in this and he wasn't uh, he wasn't a spy for Czechoslovak intelligence. Ah, uh, right? yeah, you're right. So, no, I understand. Uh, and that's how a lot, a lot of times we kind of misinterpret this. That uh, mm. in the archive, you know, yeah, we recruited all these people, but in reality, yeah. uh, this is not how it worked. Some of the, some of the Africans, uh, they didn't even know they were recruited, or or, or some of them actually. Uh, there is a great case of Denis Pambea, uh, who actually worked for a cage for, for Czechoslovaks, but also for the MI6 and for the CIA like at the same time. Mm. So wow. uh, this is a lot more, more, more complicated and interesting here. Right, exactly, uh, definitely. Yes, but I think I think that were important because to understand the story of early stage Czechoslovak relationship with the PIGC, mm. you have to know. It was, you have to know that 
kind of clandestine relationship and right. you have to know about somebody like um, somebody like Alta, right uh, mm -hmm. and his role or why because the question is why were Czechoslovaks um, supplying arms and cash to this tiny kind of liberation yeah. movement which was relatively unknown uh, mm -hmm. in the early 60s and so was Cabral relatively unknown so you, you right. need to know uh, th that's why it's important to know about these connections which were oftentimes kind of clandestine right exactly yeah you have to go a little bit deeper like not necessarily reflecting the views of the the Soviet leadership of the time which like you know support of Vietnam or North Korea would be a bit more visible um but again like we said before a completely different context but then these guys like like Alter and and whoever else in the KGB might be involved or GRU might be involved would also have you know a role in saying hey we need to get these guys and the leadership then says oh, it's a good idea then like you say we talked about a few minutes ago eventually they start sending um anti-air missiles to to Angola instead of just having personal contact and like a, a buddy <laughs> over in Africa basically <laughs> it becomes much more than that but it starts with that that clandestine uh connection yeah yeah not always clandestine could be also just some person like just because for example in in Moscow people like uh, members of the Soviet Solidarity Committee would be very involved and but mm, yeah some mm -hmm. of this was some of this was very open and public uh, yeah. Because going back, what we talked about the kind of cultural, cultural exchange, cultural relationships, kind of cultural political, um, they also did kind of make a difference uh, because these kind of so-called public organizations like the Soviet Solidarity Committee uh, were also very much involved in um, hosting African revolutionaries or even like the head of the initially uh, the head of the. Institute of African Studies in Moscow, Ivan Patochin, right? Uh -huh. Who he was also, for example, involved very early on before he died uh, in 1960-64. So, mm. so there were all of these kind of people that I talk in my book, and you know, when you dig deep in the deep in the archive, you can see, you know, their role uh, was important. And as I argue, these people they the way that they've related their interlocutors, uh, their African clients, a lot of it was, some of it was personal, but a lot of it was also shaped by their worldview, the ideology. Right. You mentioned the worldview. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. It, it mattered to them that Cabral, you know, was uh, very interested in Marxism. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a Marxist. He was very interested in socialism and scientific socialism. Uh, it so it, it mattered. It also mattered to them say that uh, Mondlane, Vlad Mondlane, who was the first president um, of Frelimo, had a very mm -hmm. close initially, initially to the Kennedy administration. Right? They obviously did oh, not like yes. that. Mm -hmm. And he, for them, he was an American, right? Because mm -hmm. he. He spent, uh, he, he was educated in the United States. He had an American wife. Yeah. All of that, they were very suspicious about the Soviets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because of their worldview. To, to understand why they treated certain people different, I think you need to talk about, think about ideology as well. Right. 
Yeah, well, it always comes up in the Cold War, yeah. Actually, talking uh, about ideology, when I was in Mozambique, I was really struck by how, uh, you know, the streets are named. You know, you have Hamakara Cabral, you have Karl Marx Street, Kim Jong-il Street, for goodness sake. Uh, <laughs> like the coat of arms of Mozambique has this huge red star on it. Um, so how how communist, uh, so to speak, quote unquote, what was Frelimo and these other parties? Like I know the Soviet uh, leadership kind of like, you know, when talking about Syria and Iraq and like, you know, in the Middle East, there were some communists were persecuted in the Middle East, but they still supported uh, the Baathists uh, because they, you know, the Baathists were secular uh, nationalist uh, Arab parties, but they were convenient allies, even if they were persecuting fellow communists. So how communist was Frilimo and and PAIGC and and um, MPLA? Were they mostly communist or were they kind of more like, yeah, were there instances where somebody was thought of themselves as socialist and anti-colonialist, but not necessarily full-on communist? Yeah, no, I, I definitely would not call these nationalist movements communist. Uh, right. They, they, they were, no, they were not communist parties. Uh, there were broad nationalist fronts. Uh, right, you know, it's a bit different. But of course, like elsewhere in the continent, many among the leadership, but also the rank and file in these movements, they were interested. Uh, they were interested in uh, socialist ideas. I think. I think there were a lot of different people in the movement with with very complex views if we're talking um about you know, somebody like monlana right on one hand he kind of was a he was a christian right kind of devoted mm. christian also mm-hmm. same time he was interested uh, in socialism right yeah. we're talking about Michelle, right uh, so who um succeeded uh Michelle was interested in China, in the ideas of Mao Zedong, was interested mm-hmm. in socialism. But uh, it's it's really hard to kind of, but they were also kind of wanted to do it in their own way, right? So they're also interested in, Tanz- for example, Tanganyika and Tanzanian socialism and what Nyerere was doing uh, with um, kind of his project of Ujamaa, Mm, okay. agricultural kind of communal communalism uh so uh yes they they i wouldn't call them communist i think it's it's a very complex discussion yeah um, at the same time of course uh after independence in angola and mozambique uh in, in angola and pla in mozambique frilimo proclaimed themselves marxist leninist parties right uh, so but at the same time, in Angola, say um, the MPLA also oftentimes persecuted uh, grassroots leftist groups. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, so so it's a very yeah. complicated story uh, which hasn't been fully written. I think what they were interested they were interested in also kind of the role of the party, right. the role movement in unifying uh what you know under colonial rule were fundamentally quite weak states because somewhere like mozambique angola you know 
is is a is a country that's almost artificially pulled together right mm. in the 19th century and you have uh, a lot of people of different ethnicities living together right. in a country that has oftentimes closer connections to neighboring countries right then and you mm. have so i think for them marxism and socialism was a way of creating a nation state mm -hmm. beyond ethnicity you know to use ideology as a unifying uh unifying marker yeah. uh so that's why they were interested in in that in that ideology uh many of them also they were also interested in kind of rapid economic growth and modernization that mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union for one way or another was achieved, you know, kind of in the 30s, but even in the 1950s, the Soviet Union was growing at very fast, uh, fast rate. Um, so, but, but also there were people in the movements who were interested in social democracy, right? And then mm -hmm. the, the experience of the Nordic countries and the Nordic countries provided oh. a lot of humanitarian aid uh, in um, in in all three, and especially actually in Mozambique, right, um, and South. Mm. So there there would not be a straightforward answer to your question. Right. Yeah, uh, it's a whole another episode. <laughs> yes, uh, but uh, they they were there were different people in the movement. If you're talking about somebody like Marcelino dos Santos. Who was an important member of Frelimo, he was very much inspired by the Chinese Revolution, for example, right. because of experience in China and uh, traveling in China during the Great Leap Forward. And of course, a lot of these people were interested in scientific socialism, or kind of because what they saw as African socialism in the 60s, somebody that was. Uh, Nkrumah, for example, advocated in Ghana, didn't really work out. Right. So, um, didn't achieve you know, the rapid economic growth that was promised. So, they were also mm -hmm. wanting to modernize uh, kind of the people tradition to go kind of to educate the people, to kind of raise their level um, so that this kind of modernization would be possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so these were fundamental, I would say that these were uh, modernizing movements that were interested mm -hmm. in modernity, in progress. But um, uh, I would not necessarily call them, call them communist. Um, right. I don't think they were, they were communist, uh, but uh, they, they were kind of, complicated um, complicated movements that had a lot of different ideological and kind of ideational strands within them yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's uh, what I always love to say one of the one of the things that I find interesting you know studying the Cold War and so on and even modern times is that you know one one thing that many one mistake that many people make is uh, communism is is a monolith it's always the same thing. It's always this, but it's like, no, communists, uh, they have 
there are different types. <laughs> there are different types of communism. Uh, there's like there are different types of conservatives too. So it's like a very um, so like that that nuance is very important. I've I've mentioned it on my podcast too. You know, it's not not one thing. There are different types, and there are yes. degrees of it. Yes, absolutely. I think these people were fundamentally because of their backgrounds, right? Growing up in the during the interwar period uh, under kind of a colonial dictatorship Mm. Um, they um, of course um, their background is that they were highly suspicious of kind of capitalism you know in this kind of form of exploitation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, of capitalism and they often equaled that to kind of colonialism so for them socialism would be something that would allow liberation um, not not just the the euro liberation, but um, of course, real kind of economic liberation of their countries. Mm-hmm. So this this was fundamental to them. Uh, once, of course, these countries became independent, uh, there was no blueprint that anybody had. I mean, even in the Soviet Union, right? Of course, 1917, Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, the Bolsheviks didn't have a blueprint. For, yeah. for what they were doing and they they changed their mind how they were going to achieve uh, the aims of a worker state uh, but again they they were many of them are marxist they kind of shared a marxist worldview mm-hmm. but uh, they they didn't necessarily have a specific blueprint um, for for the society especially including for how to achieve um, economic modernization, right? Um, so, so they were they were kind of also responding to the reality on the ground, uh, which was a very complicated economic reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the true. Uh, withdrew. But there's always going to be a, a a different approach and a different worldview approach to to different uh, to the same problem. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, so uh, just very quickly, uh, talking about other former British colonies in the area, like Mozambique specifically, is in the, surrounded by <laughs> these English and, well, I guess uh, Tanzania is a former German one, but it, I guess the British took it over in World War I. It, it seems to me anyway, uh, but um, that Zimbabwe is a little bit relevant uh, because I understand that China supported uh, one of the parties, ZANU, which is Robert Mugabe, uh, Mugabe's party, while well, the Soviets supported Zepu, which was another another party active in the area. That's according to uh, a YouTube video I watched uh, from a channel called The Front, uh, which is a military channel. But so did you find that, and uh, the reason I mentioned that Zimbabwe is kind of relevant because it's close to Mozambique and ZANU fighters went back and forth between Mozambique and, well, what was then called Rhodesia. And Rhodesian troops even raided um, Zenu Zepu uh, militant camps in Mozambique um, across the border. Uh, so, did you find that Zimbabwe was relevant in your in your in your studies over this, uh, like in this book or like other other research you've done in the um, in Portuguese South, Portuguese Africa? Uh, well, um, South Rhodesia comes uh, Zimbabwe, right? Um, right. Is, is a little bit is not as important in the story of in the 1960s and 70s 
uh, even though, of course, I mean, it's of, of course extremely relevant because Portugal, South Africa, and South Rhodesia had an mm. important military alliance at the right. time, called mm -hmm. Alcora, kind of clandestine military alliance. So they were, these three countries in the regions were closely aligned and they were helping each other economically, militarily, and intelligence. So that's right. to start with. Of course, right. yeah, it, it is relevant in that sense. Uh, in the sense of the liberation movements before independence, for for Free Limo, uh, who of course had had an alliance, who, who you know who had an alliance with uh, with Zano actually, for uh, for Free Limo, uh, the context of because they were based in um, Tanzania, Tanzania was uh, much more important for the Angolan MPLA. It was uh, North Rhodesia or Zambia. Uh, mm. which which Zambia and Tanzania, which was much more important for them uh, as a launching pad uh, for the uh, guerrilla war and also right. as their host country. Mm. Because, of course, uh, South Rhodesia was still under white minority rule and mm -hmm. there was no way that the white minority kind of regime would be hosting them, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. So, uh, so that's why, uh, but of course, later on, as you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Renamo and arguably uh, the origins of Renamo, which was group that would oppose Frelimo after independence or was mm -hmm. um, actually in South Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, I mean, oh, before, really? before it became, uh, yes, I mean, there is a sense that originally Renamo was created by by members of um, South Rhodesian intelligence service before wow. being taken, yeah, before being taken on by South Africa. But that's a story for later after after independence. Overall, my point is uh, to understand uh, Cold War politics in Africa, to understand Cold War, Cold War in Southern Africa more generally, and mm. I, I do argue this in the book. You have to. You know, if, if you want it or not, because it, it can yeah. be complex, you yeah. have to understand the specific regional African mm -hmm. context. Very um, much so. Absolutely. So you talked about Mozambique being so connected, you know, to South Africa to understand everything around the story, uh, even the origins of 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 Rilimo, but also how this this war unfolded. Uh, the relationships you need to look and look at specific regional African context, mm -hmm. ge geography of these places, mm -hmm. right? Where they were based, um, yeah. where they were operating. So this context and the politics of African states is really crucial to understand um, the, the course of the anti-colonial wars and also uh, after independence, what happens with, unfortunately, civil wars, both Angola and Mozambique. Mm -hmm. So that context of African regional politics is crucial uh, to understand um, what's happening in South Africa at the time and to understand even the, the Cold War in the region. Sometimes right. I would say even more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's a, a very good place to, uh, to finish there. That's uh, very interesting. 
So Cold War liberation, the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Portuguese Empire in Africa, 1961 to 1975. That's the book that we were talking about today. Um, so for for listeners, who how can they get hold of hold of your book? The book uh, you can find uh, online via the website of the University of North Carolina Press. Mm-hmm. And uh, also on uh, on different online uh kind of uh, resellers Uh but fortunately uh we you can also get the book for free Mm, yes um available with the support of the mellon foundation um, Mm. and the university of north carolina press so you can find the book uh as a free ebook online Professor Telepnyava, it was uh, really nice to uh, have you on, and it was uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for uh, for for being on with us today. Thank you, thank you very much. That was Professor Natalia Telepnyava. It was a pleasure to, to be able to talk to her and uh, and be able to learn more about the Soviet Union's interactions with Mozambique and other former Portuguese colonies in Africa. It's a very interesting, uh, lately I've uh, developed an interest in the, the Cold War in Africa. And um, certainly interesting now today, there's a lot of talk about uh, China, Russia, and the Western world competing in Africa now. So, you know, I don't believe history repeats itself, but it rhymes. But And obviously we have to be careful about what comparisons we make. But the comparisons are interesting, uh, indeed. And nowadays you don't really have so much the ideology necessarily. It's more about about resources and development and there is a little bit of uh rhetoric there um as well you know the western side will say well they need to partner with us with the democracy and so stuff like that that's what i would say uh but um but the cold war is a whole nother animal and whole nother beast by itself (laughs) so whether we're moving into a cold war ii or not which i would sort of say that we are um, is another story altogether. But uh, Africa is definitely a very um, amazing place. There's a lot of rich history there, uh, and, it's a, and it's a huge place as well. So even just scratching the surface of Portuguese Africa, so um, with, uh, with Portugal's former colonies there. So uh, I actually spent some time in Mozambique as well. It was, uh, it was amazing. And uh, so it was really nice being able to learn a little bit more about uh, the history of Mozambique with the help of Professor Tilepnieva. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. And uh, what I, I will um, I will sign off for now. But again, I will post a uh, I will show the I'll post the link of Professor Tilepnieva's book that we discussed in the show notes, and you can download it. I was able to download it. It's a good read. It's very detailed, and it's also doesn't get stuck in the weeds, I believe, you know, just, um, you know, get it sometimes, you know, books can be kind of hard to follow with a lot of things going on and everything. But I found that this book for me was really easy to follow. And it made a lot of sense. Uh, it didn't get distracted. It didn't lose focus or anything like that. It just it was it was a really good read. Uh, it was it was nice to look at. So I will send I will attach that to the show notes. And I will leave you with this quick little message. In the meantime, I would like to say thanks. And uh, I hope that everyone is doing fine and taking good care of each other. Bye-bye. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast and the books, paper, 
and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you would like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com slash historical thoughts. And again, that's patron.podbean slash historical thoughts.